Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So thank you guys so much for for listening over over whatever is going on at the minute. Uh, listenership has gone through the roof, and the amount of messages and stuff like that. I've been so lucky to have who I've had on in the last little while, um, and I'm very very lucky in that regard. And it's it's amazing to kind of talk to people about mindset, fitness, yoga, everything uh, over the over the last few weeks. So today's episode is with Damien Brown or old underscore stock on Instagram. So Damien is a former professional rugby player who used to play for the likes of Leinster, Connacht, Northampton, Breve and other teams over in France as well. But after a 16 career, 16 year career, uh, injury forced his hand and he had to make the, the decision to retire. But in 2016, he took the, the, the mile of the Sahara Desert and he decided to do a 257 kilometer race, uh, the Marathon de Saab, uh, also known as the toughest foot race on earth and completed that. But then he, that wasn't enough for him. So he decided in 2017 to complete a 4,800 kilometer man powered crossing of the Atlantic Ocean as well. Um, so th- Damien, thank you so much for coming on today. I really, really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me, Shane. Appreciate it. So Damien, for anyone that I know I've given you a brief introduction there, but for anyone that isn't aware of your rugby career and your post rugby career, can you kind of give us a little bit more details on that kind of stuff? Sure. Uh, so um, I'm from Galway originally. Um, so I was very lucky to come out of uh, school just after leaving third into professional rugby in, in 1998. So rugby was only professional about three or four years at that stage. So there wasn't a whole lot of, um, um, depth to like player squads and rosters so I think they just saw this big lump of a young fella and I kind of got fast tracked through into the senior provincial setup in Connacht and uh, yeah lucky enough to have kind of a 16 year career um, from then I played five years with Connacht moved to England for four years uh, with Northampton Saints then went to France I was you know in um in professional rugby you play the European Cup which means you kind of travel out to France a couple of times a year if you're lucky um, to play and I always fancy playing out there so um, I moved to a club called Breve after Northampton for three years and um, loved loved living out there loved the way of life um, and it's an incredible league to play in um, like over 100 years of history so had three years there very happy um, with life rugby Rugby was good, it went well for me, but um, it's very, the French are a little bit behind, they're a bit unprofessional, so um, in, especially in things like the medical side and the strength conditioning side, um, they have a lot of money that they pour into uh, players, um, um, but they don't put a whole lot into um, structures around making players better, like strength conditioning, they don't really respect it enough, so um, that was pretty frustrating, but then um, I was very kind of fortunate to be um, to have an interest taken in me by Leinster um, in 2011 um, and I was kind of a, I was kind of ready to move on from Breve at that stage so when Leinster came looking I was like I only love to go back home it had been like seven years at that stage so um, jumped at that opportunity Leinster were like European champions at the time so you know um, and they were doing you know the rugby they were playing the players they had I mean it was just like a kind of dream scenario so I signed there 
for played there for two years. Uh, good and bad. Um, club and province was highly successful. Personally, um, I just struggled with injuries through that um, time. I had uh, during my first year, I got a shoulder injury about halfway through the season that kind of hung around for like a year and a half. It was, and I had surgery in the middle of that. So um, played about thirty odd games for the province, but I was probably injured for a good twenty of them. You know, playing through injury, which was you know physically very hard, obviously, but psychologically even harder. Um, and then um, so had shoulder surgery mid second season, uh, and then lost my contract there, uh, and then went back to France and finished with a club called Oyana. Um, I. Notice you avoided trying to. I well, yeah, name. I I didn't really do even say French, so I avoided saying the name because I didn't want to put myself into shame there. Yeah, even some of the to be honest with you, even some of the French people don't know how to say it properly. They're not used to having a Y and an X in a French name, so uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an unknown place even to some French people. It's it's hidden in the kind of east of the country, near to the Swiss border. It's between Lyon and Geneva. Uh, it's a tiny little town, but it has a quite successful rugby club. So played there for two years and then um, retired in 2015. And then, like you said, I kind of went into, um, uh, well, I kind of chose a very non-traditional path with something that was very, very important to me and um, purposeful to me and things I wanted to do with my life uh, that they involved travel and adventure. Uh, and I had a, um, I had and still have a list of, of things I want to get through, and um, so some of them that you already mentioned, the Martin de Sable, um, the um, Atlantic Row, and um, the Seven Summits. And how did you find the transition from being involved with lots of lots of teammates, um, and doing kind of the solo stuff that you were doing? How did you make the transition? I always felt like. I evolved, I suppose, over 15 or 16 years into a, what I would deem a good teammate. You know, I was very comfortable being a teammate. I knew my um, the sacrifices that teammates have to, team members have to make. And I always felt that uh, that was a strength of mine, you know, that I, I would always put the team first. Um, so it didn't hugely appeal to me or the opposite kind of, was where I wanted to lead myself and lead my life into kind of a more individual pursuit after rugby. So that's kind of where the attraction and the drive into um, the solo efforts or just the outside a team, I suppose, is the best way to put it. Um, now, the only place that's really prevalent is in was in the Atlantic Crossing because, you know, in, um, in anything else I've done, there is a team element. Um, now... You know the the link to a rugby team is you know it's night and day it's not the same of course but there is an element of being a team member when you're on a mountain expedition or even when you do the mountain de sable you know because you're kind of you're put into I don't know if people know this but in the mountain de sable you are grouped with people who um, are from the same country as you so basically you sleep in these uh, Berber tents uh, which are like a local tribe in the Sahara Desert and they're just like a big huge burlap kind of sack they put a few sticks to keep up the sack and a few mats on the ground and you're putting it with like six to eight people from your same, the same country so 
um, that what you've gone through to get there and what you're going through while you're there kind of uh, it bonds you you know it accelerates the bonding so there is a there is an element of or there is a feeling of it you've been in a team with those people not only because they're from the same country but because they're all suffering to some extent together and you're all going through the same thing and you can hugely relate to the struggles that everyone else is going through physical and mental so um, with that as well there is a um, like I said a, a link to a kind of a team environment but very different from rugby which is uh, like the, the extremes of the team environment yeah um, I know the with the I've, I've interviewed someone else that's done the Mar de Sable, which is Brian Keane um, oh. and he, he's done the event himself um, and then but you've done the, the Atlantic Challenge in particular how did you cope with the isolation part of things because I think isolation is unfortunately it is one of those things that's going on at the minute with what's going on around the world how did you cope with that side of things and have you got any advice for people that are potentially having to cope with that at the minute the first thing I'd say about that is um, and I think people will realise this they probably don't need me to say it but like uh, one there, they are, there is a there is a big difference between what is happening and what I went through. Even even the fact that one was a choice, like you know that I I chose to put myself in that um, isolated state for what ended up to be you know nine weeks or sixty three days, um, and what we're going through at the moment now, nobody is choosing this, and nobody really um, probably wants it. Now that being said, there is things that I would kind of looking back um, on what I went through, there was things that I became quite reliant on um, to get me through that, you know, the um, the challenge of rowing the Atlantic and the challenge of being isolated that I didn't really kind of realize that I was out there. So um, the first one when I was a connection. So connecting through the sat phone the sat phone became really important um i talked to so i switch it on basically every night between six and seven in the evening and um when i was on a break and then i go in i go back and do a shift on the oars and while i was on the oars i could hear the sat phone beeping which just meant that like text messages were coming through uh, and that gave me a huge lift you know that just that simple um dopamine hit from uh, the hearing the phone beep and knowing that somebody was, you know, trying to make contact with you and thinking of you and sending you messages. Um, and then when I go in, you know, I'd obviously, I'd read the messages and then I'd also more than likely, probably every two or three days, I'd talk to somebody on the sat phone, mostly my parents, but sometimes friends um, and uh, other members of my family. So became a huge part of my crossing and became something the deeper I got into it the more important it was um, now there's other forms of connection that were really important as well and the connection to myself and my body and um, my mind so what that looked like if people are wondering was just you know um, connecting with the body working every day so almost like I don't know if some people might do like mindfulness or meditation, but there's a, you know, the body scan. It's the, it's the same thing I like to do it though. When I'm training, I'm just trying to connect with 
technique or, or uh, body position or F that's in my control and just bring me back to the present moment and very connected with my body and mind uh, working as one. So um, that was really important. Obviously, it was important for other, other reasons as well. It was going to get me across to the other side. Um, and the last thing that, uh, unbeknownst to myself, became very unbeknownst before I started, but became very important was um, a video diary that I um, started taking on day one. So I, I brought this piece of um, this unit called the Began, uh, which is a broadband satellite uplink. I brought it because I wanted to try and share my journey with people through social media, you know. So I take small little videos. Uh, and then I'd send them back to a friend of mine through this system. Um, that was the intention from the start to be as kind of authentic and honest and share the highs and lows of the journey and the experience. Um, but what it turned out to be was like almost a, um, a kind of video journal where I was just blurting out whatever was inside me into my phone. Um, and I started to make these videos every day and I, I didn't send them all, but some of them were like seven, eight minutes long of me just literally blurting out or venting or just talking about my day and what I'd gone through and they became really cathartic. So, um, you know, if, if that's something, if there's something in that for people, I think it's just the, the process of doing that can help rather than bother. So, you know, what that might look like to people right now is just to start a little journal themselves, to start writing down um, certain things that they're going through in the day or feeling. And uh, I, I felt that that was, um, sorry, on reflection, it's, uh, that was a really important part of my crossing. That's amazing. And like the, the before photo and the after photo of the, of the crossing, there's a drastic difference between your body composition and your body weight in general. Uh, there's a significant weight loss. And it, how did you get ready nutrition-wise and training-wise before that event? Um, and how much how much actual weight did you lose over, that, over those days? I lost 28 kilos um, over the 63 days. So I, I started at 130 kilos, uh, so quite big. Yeah. Um, and finished at 102. So um, I put on about 130 is probably about 10 to 12 kilos overweight or over my walk around rate weight. So I kind of walk around at about 120 normally. Um, you know, so I, you know when I was playing rugby, I was nearly 130 the whole time. But finishing rugby, I dropped quite a bit of mass because you don't need it, right? Um, but uh, coming up to the race, I just I was very aware uh, that I was going to lose a lot of weight. So there was a window there where, like, about three weeks out from the race, you can just eat whatever you want. <laughs> so uh, I was just chowing down the whole time. No, um, uh, what would you say? No guilt or remorse about whatever I was putting into my body because I knew it was all going to fall off. Now I never thought in a million years I was going to lose twenty eight kilos because I mean that's obviously very extreme and I, I haven't I hadn't been 102 kilos probably since I was like 14 years old or 15 years old so when I stood on the scales in Antigua and saw that number 
I remember my brother was standing beside me and he just burst out laughing like and I when I saw myself in the mirror a few hours after that when I finally got to um, a hotel room you know I was seeing bits of like bones sticking out of places I'd never seen um, so it was it was yeah very uh, unusual and dramatic um, the training first took I, I started training for the Atlantic Row about 18 months before uh, um starting off so it was actually I remember exactly it was 588 days when I committed to the race and tried to put a training a rough training plan in place um before the start date you know so um at a fit for purpose is a great way to think about these things so what does the purpose look like so basically you're going to row a lot so there's a bit of rowing in there but um you want to be big and strong coming into a um an ocean row and durable you know and resilient so mentally and physically obviously so um i like to uh, combine um a lot of my mental stuff with with the physical so put myself into really tough places mentally physically therefore mentally and just try and work some tools and processes around that so that was a big part of it so what i'm talking about there is simply like intervals on the ergometer the indoor rower um intensity intervals like so with, with big breaks you know like two to one three to one sometimes up to six to one but like you know you're trying to read um you're trying to and you should be able in some cases to um to produce the same um effort and number so psychologically that can be really hard if you come off a piece you know like let's say a thousand meter interval on a rower and um like you've got a big break you've got a six to one break but you know that you have to reproduce that maximal effort again psychologically that can put you in a very outcome oriented state so again it's just about bringing yourself back to the present moment with some mental stuff and just staying present and, you know i did a lot of that and um and it stood to me very well on the on the ocean and and then physically i did a lot of strength work um just try to get uh, my numbers up on you know big compound lifts uh deadlift in particular chins a lot of um, posterior chain work um and then there's quite a bit of mobility work i'm you know off the back of rugby i'm i'm pretty compromised in my uh movement and mobility just because it's such a it's such a uh, kind of Oh, it's a, such a beast of a sport and there's such sacrifices you have to make week in week out just to get on the pitch so you um your body does suffer and it does get a lot of chronic problems and you know unfortunately it's a bit of, you just have to suck it up and get on with it so you do that for 15 years it catches up with you you know and you get very you get some issues like so trying to improve my mobility over that time while also trying to uh improve improve my performance as a human um is quite tough you know um but uh so there's quite a bit of mobility work uh, around um the physical and the conditioning work um and i just wanted to be in a you know the way i look at these things so fit for purpose of course on the, uh, the day before you or the day you stand on the start line but also uh in peak kind of condition you know so um as strong as you can be as fit as you can be and as durable and as and as mobile as you can be and i feel i wasn't far off that you know 18 months is a long long time to prepare for something and there's major kind of ups and not sorry there's ups and downs within that 18 months and it's very hard to kind of 
keep your standards um, sky high through such a long period. But uh, I think just with a bit of self accountability, I, I managed it pretty well, and I was I was very happy with where I was about three and a half weeks before the start of the race. I just competed in the um, Irish Indoor Rowing Championships, and um, I set two records, two Irish records, one for the 500 meter and one for the 1,000 meters. So I felt like, I mean, it couldn't have really gone a whole lot better, um, even, you know, even though it was far from perfect. You know, I was in a really good place, uh, two PBs, and um, and I felt good. Um, and uh, yeah, um, after that, I kind of made a bit of a mistake, though. I kind of tapered my training. From then, you know, I kind of felt... Um, uh, I'm like, what is there? I had another five or six days, I think, in my training plan, and then it was like meant to be two weeks uh, taper before the end of the race. But uh, I kind of cut those last five or six days, thinking, well, like, I mean, you just come off the back of two national records, you feel great. Well, what good is another five or six days training going to do? So, um, Flew out to the start. Uh, I was two weeks out there getting ready, organizing the boat. Didn't do any physical training, uh, and then the boat and then the race got put back um, two days because of weather. The start, so it ended up in three and a half, about three weeks, twenty-three days, I think, that I hadn't done any training, and my body had just detrained in that time. It just went soft, and my uh, I went, I started the race and all the emotion of um you know finally achieving what you want to achieve which was to start and then you know the adrenaline and just saying goodbye to your parents i tore out of the blocks and my body <laughs> my body was just it wasn't ready believe it or not for that little you know after what i put it through for three weeks which was literally zero uh, physical uh, stress or effort uh it just started to shut down straight away it's like nah not having this um which was interesting um because what was interesting about that was it was ready. It had just kind of gone soft off the back of that little period. But like the 18 months training was still there. It was just that there was like a level that I had to kind of almost expend and shock my body. And then I kind of got, once I got past that moment, my body was good. And I was, I was, um, you know, I was back into the groove. And what was like? What was the nutrition like on when you were on the boat? Like, what kind of stuff were you eating? Or um, six and a half thousand calories a day I had, um, and that was what was that? It was made up of three and a half thousand calories of snacks and three thousand calories of um, freeze dried or dehydrated um, uh, meals. So they were like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then they were just things you add boiling water to, and they rehydrate. Um, you can get big packs of a thousand calories um, from some companies, and you know they're not the worst tasting things you'll ever have. Like I made a again, uh, you know, if I was ever to do another ocean row, which I will, um, um, I one of the mistakes I made off on this row was not bringing any like salts and peppers and hot sauces. It just kind of got lost in the list of things to do before starting, and I just never brought it. So some of those meals became very um, bland uh, 40, 50 days into this crossing, you know. Um, but I did try and bring a nice variety of stuff and a nice variety of um, uh, um, 
what would you say, producers who made different meals. So there was a bit of um, novelty to what I was eating, and I tried to mix it up. And then the snacks that I brought were things like, so I brought a, a load of peanut butters, almond butters, cashew nut butters, um, and then I brought MCT oil, and I brought uh, like nuts and seeds, um, and I used to mix all those together with some whey. Some I brought some nut um, nut butters with whey in them as well, uh, and I mixed them together, and they were just absolutely delicious. I that was just some, that wasn't something I planned. It was just something that happened out there, and it turned out to be. <laughs> hugely um nutritional hugely caloric which i needed obviously and um and actually was tasty uh and then you had like things like biltong i brought i brought um protein powders um i had a every morning when i'd wake up i'd have a protein shake with some um dextrose and multidextrin in it for for um carbo quick um fast release carbohydrates but also just for um for calories um, I, can't, I can't. I can't remember. I think I might have creatine in there, or maybe it was um, glutamine, something like there was something else in there. Um, and that would kind of be my initial breakfast, and then I'd have a rehydrated meal. Uh, and then other snacks were like protein bars, flapjacks. Um, what else did I have? Yeah, just about three and a half hour, like sweets, parable. Um, and then I had, every seven days, I'd put together a little treat for myself, which were uh, like things like um, roses and quality streets and miniature heroes. And they were all in a little bag because I had my food numbered like every day, one to 90. So every seven days, there was this little glorious little pack of chocolates that I um, that I uh, kind of had as a reward for getting through a week and also a little treat at the end of the day. And I can honestly say, I think I had all those bags gone through after about 35 days. <laughs> I went hunting, yeah, it, it didn't last. I went hunting them down, um, you know, some days that just uh, found them and stopped them. Jesus, yeah, like, yeah, I think I think you deserved your your, uh, your roses on your quality street when you were doing that. Um, in relation to, like you've mentioned there, like that you've got ideas for challenges kind of coming up in the, in the next however long it is or in the future where do you come up with your challenges and what's the motivator behind a lot of the challenges is it more of a mental aspect or is it more of a physical aspect or a mix of the both um so i would have with the uh, like would have what i wish what i've done before now i would have discovered um those uh, races or those challenges kind of just out of a very um uh, what would you say uh, just an interest and passion in that area just to see what other people are doing and how they're pushing their limits and you know what's out there for people who are kind of um, drawn to that um, type of lifestyle so I was still playing rugby at the time and you know rugby was my you know number one priority be all and end all and I, I wasn't leaving it until I had kind of um, felt like I had um, closed the chapter on it but once that was done, then I kind of got into these challenges like I talked about and, and kind of that I can put on the back burner. So the Mountain de Sable, the Atlantic Row and uh, the Seven Summits. Um, why these things is because they just get me out of, simply because they're hugely challenging uh, for me personally and they get me out of my comfort zone. 
Um, I love the rewards you get from um, pushing yourself uh, into places mentally and physically and expanding yourself from that. So that's very um, attractive and it's very addictive to me, that kind of uh, self-development you get from um, and the personal growth or self-improvement you get from pushing yourself um, past and out of your comfort zone and you know, expanding yourself. Um, and all these challenges say that to me. You know, I, I like to think of challenges in kind of three tiers. So you have your kind of first tier, if you want to call it your small tier. It's something that you can challenge yourself with every day. Um, it's something that's a sustainable challenge that will um, give you something physically and mentally. So for a lot of people, that would be going for a run or, you know, going for a cycle or going to the gym or doing something that, you know. And then I like to think of second level or the medium tier is something that you might do every three or four months in a year you know something that you might target and build up to um it might it might be i don't know what it could be like you might say to yourself i'm going to try and row let's say because we're talking a lot about rowing i'm going to try and row a half marathon on the herb or something like that you know so a goal you give yourself something you've never done something that's hard but like it's not really really hard uh, and then I like to think of big or large challenges, and something you might do once every year or two years. And that's what these are. Um, you know, I'm always challenging myself on the other levels, but that's what these ones are. They're the big challenges, the ones that kind of are going to uh, take a lot of effort to not only complete but make happen. And um, you know, with that effort comes bigger rewards than the the normal, uh, the smaller challenges. And um, yeah, those. To be honest with you, trying to sum up what those rewards are uh, that drive you back in, you could pick many different kind of angles and go down that and, and never really touch on uh, half of what comes back. But I, the best way I can describe it is probably just, um, it's like an all-encompassing uh, internal growth. Um, so be that, you know, physically I get better, mentally I get better, emotionally, spiritually. Um, I grow from all these things and I learn and I, and I think you only a great way to get those that kind of all-encompassing growth is just to push yourself into these huge endeavors that are um, incredibly difficult for you and stressful and you know um, at times seem uh, impossible but if you kind of persist and stay driven and determined enough and find a way to make it happen then you get all the great stuff on the end of it yeah i, I really like that it is important to kind of have the internal i think that's what sometimes people when they lose that internal they kind of go a little bit off and motivation is one of those things that's kind of being the word is being mentioned an awful lot at the minute that everyone's out of routine everyone's out of kilter they particularly like I was talking to a client this morning Was we, as we were talking off air like they're trying to do the stay in the 2k radius get their runs in but they it's the same route over and over again how did you kind of get like you've spoken about kind of getting over that but in relation to the like you you were training for so long for your next challenge which was what you're meant to be on around now which is climbing Everest how did you how did you prepare for that regarding the training in particular kind of the kumbu ice fall and stuff like that so the training for everest is 
very different to the training. From, oh, sorry, it's different to the training from an ocean row or the, um, the the position, the physical state you want to be in before Everest is very different. So, whereas I was trying to be big, strong, um, and durable um, and heavy before an ocean row, um, I want I want to be very as light as I can possibly be before a, a mountain expedition because. Simply, um, mass needs oxygen, and the higher you go, and the more mass you have, the more oxygen. Sorry, the more mass you have, the more oxygen you need, and the higher you go, the less there is. Right, so it's not conducive. So I was wasn't doing any resistance training for the last kind of three months. Um, again, I competed in the Irish indoors in January, um, and up until that, I was doing like just just to kind of keep myself. Um, primed and ready for that i was doing like one um two resistant training sessions every two weeks but i was also had one eye on everest as well and the minute the irish indoors were finished i was um i I stopped doing any resistance training and then it was just it was just about getting um mass and weight off me and i was down to 106 kilos with uh, just before uh, I heard Everest was finished, so that was three weeks before I was meant to fly. Um, so again, I was in—I felt like I was in a really good place. Um, again, what I would say is that there was nothing perfect about my preparation. It was an absolute struggle. You know, I struggled around diet. I was struggling around um, getting out into mountains because if you remember February this year, it was shocking. Uh, we had a storm every weekend when I planned to get out. So. You know, but um, I was just persevering and, and getting done what I could do, and I was felt like I was in a good place. Um, so when it was called off, then yeah, a bit of a blow. But you know, I had done the work that put me in the position I wanted to be, and I had some really hard training sessions, like on a thing called the Versa Climber. It's like an indoor climber thing. Um, and that was kind of, uh, you know, having done that work and being in a position where I felt I could achieve what I wanted to achieve, uh, or in lo- or sorry, in kind of getting to that position, you know, I can't have any regrets. And um, when it when something is taken away from you, then you kind of go, well, listen, you know, you controlled what you could control. You can't control, you know, Nepal closing its mountaineering season and the coronavirus. So. You know why even worry about it so i didn't really i moved on pretty quickly and processed that but um in regards to kubo icefall and stuff like that like i had um and you do a lot of training on the mountain i remember this you know they put down ladders at base camp and you put on your crampons and you put on your um your triple layered boots and you walk across the ladders the whole time uh and you know what like that's not those crossings of the ladders and that they actually don't bother me i've done a little bit of that stuff on past like uh, even on uh, karsten's pyramid when we did um we had a couple of traverses to make and it's just a wire um that your feet's on a steel cable and then you have two um cables for your hands and you kind of shimmy across i feel quite comfortable um i've never really freaked out and i've seen people freak out on those things actually one of the lads who was on Carstens with me absolutely freaked out on uh, on one of those traverses. Um, so I wasn't, the reason I mentioned that is I wasn't particularly concerned about ladder crossings and I felt like 
the practice we would do on at base camp over and over again um, would equip me for that. Uh, what I was concerned about was just really the altitude, um, just because of my mass, you know. So I was doing, you know, obviously here in Ireland we don't have any mountains, high altitude mountains, um, so it's very hard to uh, recreate altitudes. So there is um, a breathing technique you can do called butikio, which is a Russian breathing technique. Um, and I was doing a little bit of that, and I've, I've had some success with that in the past, you know. And basically, it's, um, it recreates your blood oxygen saturation levels. So um, when we're on Everest or when we're on any high altitude mountain, our blood oxygen sats will drop to sometimes like 60, 70. I think if it goes below 70, they start to get worried, but it'll be in and around that. Um, and doing boutiqueo, which is simply some light nasal breathing and then you just hold your nose and you walk as far as you can and you count your steps and you do like five or six sets of that uh three times and then you obviously it's a bit like weight training you try and improve you know you try and uh, go up in your um in your steps um and yeah and i have a blood oxygen sats meter you know one of those little things you put on your finger just to see and sometimes i've dropped it below 50 from doing those walking those steps so that is just something you can do to prepare your body. Same as like weight training, right? For a resistance training, you're just preparing your body with the, that hitting that stimulus. So just doing that with the breathing, I felt it's helped me in uh, on like Aconcagua and Denali. Um, so I was doing a little bit of that because, like I said, the altitude is the thing that scares me most, and it's where I've really struggled in the past on mountains. Um, so yeah, just preparing myself with that. I think one of the like first of all like the 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 ice fall I I was watching videos of it last night. I'm not great with heights, so I don't think I'd uh, I don't think I'd enjoy it. Um but one of the quotes that really has resonated with me from following you for a long time is the positivity is a choice. And I think this is probably a pretty apt going on at the moment that so I've had I've had mental health issues previously and one of the biggest things that I I, I struggled with was this kind of negative self-talk. But positivity is a choice that you've kind of and you've you've alluded to this quote um and you've spoken about it can you kind of expand on that a little bit more yeah sure um so i think we're i we're we're faced with so many choices right um in a day in a moment even um and half of them we don't even know we don't even know we're making choices around it, and I think positivity is one of those things that it can be um, it can be trained. Um, and I I often go back to um, my physical training and a particular like interval training um, when you go into really I, I find these moments so powerful. Like if you can continue, if you have the power to push yourself into really stressful states um, and find the way through those states it mightn't be perfect it mightn't be exactly what you want but you find the way through it those moments uh, where you're faced with a million different choices in under duress they just translate so well into daily life and the more you can put yourself there i think the better choices you make in daily life even the unconscious ones um and when i look at those moments i i like 
I almost crave them every day because I know that I've done it so many times and I feel the association and the connection back to daily life and just making better choices. So, I am, um, yeah, if you can stay positive, if you can stay present, and if you can stay um, authentic in those moments, even if you've been negative with yourself, like even if you're in an absolute hole mentally, um, but if you can just be that honest um, version of yourself, um, I think it gives you so much power that translates back into daily life. And uh, that's that's where I kind of get the clear um, realization around positivity being a choice, you know, because making those choices in those moments are not easy. But if you make the positive choice, it's just so powerful back into daily life, and into making um, conscious and unconscious decisions. I love, I love that because I think it is literally about kind of like making little small wins so it turns into a bigger win almost like putting one foot in front of the other and, and trying and trying to do that so mm. I, I'm, I love that answer um, Damien you're a massive advocate of travelling and you've got a massive travel bug um, where is going to be the first place you go to when this is all over? Uh, unfortunately I think it won't <laughs> be that exotic I'd love it to be somewhere um I really got, like the last few years, I really got into traveling to lesser known countries or lesser traveled countries. And I love the um, experience of doing that. You know, the um, it is challenging to go into like somewhere like the Congo or Mauritania or Afghanistan um, because you don't know what you're going to be faced with. And, you know, we get a lot of these places, get a lot of negative press. So you have a lot of prejudice when you go there, then it's, you know, quite the opposite um but that is it that is the challenge and i love that little kind of challenge of travel you know so the one place i really have top of my list to go next is pakistan uh, i would love to have an opportunity to travel there and do some uh, kind of overland raw travel maybe you know that's the way i like to do it now is just locals whatever way locals kind of at the bottom of the rung travel so shared taxis you know big shitty dangerous buses you find me uh, on the middle of them you know I just I, I find that very um, eye opening um, just seeing how other people live in these countries um, so that is a country that's like I said is kind of really on my targets but um, where I'm probably going to go is Australia <laughs> <laughs> So quite different. Uh, my girlfriend's Australian. She's here with me at the moment in Ireland. She's she's locked into the country. She can't leave. Um, so uh, once um, once the you know once we're free to move around the world again, I think we'll probably head back there for a little while, and she'll get back to see her family, and uh, I'll accompany her. Accompany her, and uh, yeah, um, yeah. So so not usually exotic still you know nice very nice place to get to the business yeah fingers crossed that kind of happens sooner rather than later where's your favorite place you've been so far then because i know i you went you did kind of cambodia and stuff like that which is an incredible country um but and you also did like the the cycling around as well um yeah when when you were saying you, you don't make things easy for yourself the cycling thing was i was like I've been to that country and it's just like, how are you cycling in those me- that mental traffic that is Asia? Mm. 
I yeah. <laughs> that was an idea I had in my head for quite a few years, and I don't know why I thought um, you know I'd do it in somewhere like Cambodia. Um, but while I was there, I just it was just this kind of it was cranking up the the travel adventure a little bit, or just making things a little bit more interesting for myself. So I thought I had this idea that I'd just buy a piece of shit of a bike um and load it up and just take off now the practicalities of that were very different than the romantic way i had seen it in my head um and the piece of shit of a bike really was a piece of shit and it was way too small for me so my uh yeah it was every pedal was an effort so something that became a fun adventure actually turned into quite a challenging adventure just because getting on that thing and cycling 50 or 60 i think i cycled yeah, around 50k a day um, um, was just not attractive in any way. And it was actually hard work and it was like 40 degrees and hum- humid. And I mean, yeah, so. <laughs> but um, thankfully, the bike broke after four days. Uh, one of the pedals um, just started to skip. Uh, so I was very happy to give it to some young kid and say, here, there, that's, that's yours. <laughs> uh, and just hop on a local bus. Um, I wasn't making anywhere near the distance I thought I was going to make either. So I was kind of way behind my um, my rough, the rough itinerary I had in my head. So I was, I was very happy to, to see the back of it. Um, one of my favorite countries that I've been in the last few years was Iran. I, I loved um, the people. The people are just so welcoming and so um, hospitable and so... Uh, um, genuine, you know, there's very little um, cynicism in them. You know, I think, it, you know, it's only when you go to these places you kind of, I find, it's only when you go to these countries like that that you you see the cynicism in uh, Western culture a little bit. Um, and I was taken back by the people and their um, the way they would just approach you um, and you know invite you to their house for tea, and you're kind of going well, what's the angle here? You know, why, you know, what's happening? And they have none. They just actually want to have you in their house as a guest and uh, talk to you and um, listen to your story and share with you their time. And coming from, I mean, that that to me is just mind-blowing. Like, I just, it's hard to even fathom it coming from, you know, what I've grown up with. And, And, like, I know we're... As a country, we are incredibly friendly, but that stuff doesn't really happen. Or very, if it does, I've never experienced it. Or in Iran, it was happening all the time. Um, you know, I remember going. I had to go and get my visa um, extended in a town called Esfahan, and I went to the um, I went to the local um, passport kind of police uh, thing, and I mean. It took me about two hours to get to actually see the guy I had to see because everybody, every guard, every army guy wanted to have a chat, wanted to know about you. They thought I was a wrestler. They were like, want to know about wrestling. I had to try and explain I wasn't a wrestler time and time again. Uh, yeah, they're just so interested in you and like they've given you their phone number, called me. <laughs> you're like, they want to go and have a, a, a tea or a, what you call a shisha later and you're kind of going, man, if I... If I entertained uh, every one of these, I'd have to be here for another four months, like to get through you all, you know. So uh, that uh, that's an amazing part of going to these countries, and, and that left a kind of 
uh, left a strong and deep mark on me, you know, experiencing that. Um, it's nice to be. Yeah, no, I think I had the same experience in Myanmar. We stayed for one of the days we had like a three-day hike and we stayed with local villages and like local families. So they'd have like two cows who didn't, they don't look like Irish cows. They're not that, yeah. they're not that big. Um, but like, they would they would ask you questions in their broken English or you'd have the translator talking to you. They'd invite you into the house, no questions asked. And then I think it was my birthday on one of the days and they'd gone, They this family would have little or nothing and they'd go and make you a cake because the, the York tour yeah. organizers are telling them it's, it's mental. I think we could definitely take something from, like we Irish people are known as to be friendly, but as you said, they're, they're, they're a different level up. Um, like we're, we're so lucky what we have. Um, but I think we sometimes we can take it for granted and potentially that's one lesson that we can learn from what's going on at the minute as well is that some, some things could be have been taken for granted whether it be family or whatever it was um, I think that's an important message the last question that I'm going to ask Damien is in relation to kind of books or podcasts that you kind of recommend to that you listen to or um, to work on your mindset your resilience or anything in, in particular you kind of go to um i read um quite a bit um at the moment i'm trying to one of the things one of the i suppose little challenges i gave myself during this period was to read eight books in eight weeks so um currently reading um might be I'm reading the book of methods louis simmons westside verbal um oh, let's go but uh, yeah but um yeah, so I, I, I'm reading a lot at the moment, and I'm something I've I've always been a huge um, advocate of, and I just you know I have I've been reading for um, books on it like for a long time, but and they've given me a lot, so I suppose there's great rewards in books. So that's kind of where I probably um, I would have some recommendations. Uh, the first one that comes to my mind around uh, mindset and um mental strength and tools and something I got a lot from was one called um, Unbeatable Mind by um, Mark Devine. He is a ex Navy SEAL who um has um started a thing called Sealfish in San Diego or just outside San Diego somewhere. Uh, and he um he's wrote a few books now with the way of the seal uh, unbeatable mind um the wolf within and but he it's some great stuff in there around even things like um you know visualization disempowering beliefs um uh you know how our mind works and controlling it better um it gets a bit heavy at times into the kind of navy seal culture but listen there's there's loads of interest in there and if people are in any way um interested in like you know um pushing themselves and finding ways to um, to persevere in challenges and in, in challenging times, I think that's something really good. Um, so, uh, yeah, that would be one. And then, you know, around kind of travel and inspiration and stuff, there's a great book called um, Find a Way by Diane Nida, N-Y-A-D. She... Um, She's a long distance um, swimmer. So that I, I really enjoyed that book recently. 
um, great a great story of perseverance and um, will and never never giving up on a dream. Um, and then uh, I don't know. There's a Irish author I really enjoy called Dervla Murphy. And um, if anyone is into um, kind of travel and uh, raw, maybe kind of solo travel, um, there's a book called Full Tilt, where she cycles from um, Waterford to the Himalayas. And it is uh, absolutely fantastic. She, this is in the 80s. Um, so she's, she's cycled through like Yugoslavia in the middle of, in the, middle of the Balkans War. And um, some of the stories are just mind-blowing, where she sleeps and how she gets from one place to the other. So um, an amazing, an amazing, amazing woman. And she's written many, many books about her travels, you know. And, um, yeah, I think uh, she is a uh, hidden national treasure if people want to go and try and find out a little bit more about her. Like, that's mad because the 80s, like, solo traveling is such a big thing now back then uh wouldn't mm. have been such a big thing um and particularly for a lady to do it as well because yeah it's that's incredible yeah. um so those books are unbeatable mind find a way and full tilt are the ones that you've kind of mentioned um so what's like when th- things are all done and dusted, so what's coming up next for yourself damien so um there's a little bit of an unknown around exactly what's going to happen, but I have, as far as I, um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm working on three different expeditions at the moment. Uh, one of them is Everest, um, obviously, and kind of Everest is in place now for 2021. Um, when I say working, you know, there's a huge amount that goes on in the background, not just the physical and mental prep, like, but also. You know the the funding of these things and um you know some of them are huge campaigns that take a lot of work so thankfully everest is 95 percent done and set in stone for 2021 so i don't have to apart from the training of that there's not a lot of work that needs to be done in the background you know and some good sponsors there and, um, um which is great um unfortunately one of them i can't talk to you about it's a secret um <laughs> uh, but um, it's uh, it's an ocean roll, I'll say it, Ash, and it's in a very extreme part of the world, and it'll be a world first. Um, oh, wow. But I'm, I, I'm part of the team, and um, uh, the captain and the guy who's organizing it, I'm just a team member of this one, um, is on, giving me strict instructions that it's confidential, so I can't say too much. But that's, that's, that's very, very exciting. Um, and... Um, you know, when it happens, I'm sure people will be, you know, very engaged in that. And then the last one is, um, I'm hoping to row the Atlantic again uh, in uh, the year after, so 2022. But this time with a good friend of mine, and we're organizing to row from New York to Galway. So we're going to go, we're going to attempt to go the other way. Uh, there's only two ways you can cross the Atlantic in a, in a sailboat or in our case, in a rowing boat. Um, so you can go the route of already gone, which is called the Treadwinds. So from like the Canary Islands or the west coast of Africa across to the Caribbean, uh, kind of because the winds and the currents are going that way. Or you can come back to North Atlantic, which is kind of using the Gulf Stream 
there's much less winds, but the, obviously the current is very strong if you can get into it. Um, but it's much more, it's much more extreme, much more demanding. It's cold, um, and we are hoping to attempt that in 2022. So New York and hopefully roll into our hometown, um, which we just think would be an amazing thing to do with our lives. So we're going to try and do it. It's incredible. I'm I'm really excited to kind of hear the the secret adventure that you have planned. Um, and yeah. for most people, one time I around the Atlantic. I'd love uh, Shane, but uh, unfortunately, um, I I got an earful already for telling somebody about it, so I, I'm, I'm I'm my lips are closed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to pry. Um, no, but thank you so much. And where can people find out about you and make donations to 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 the causes and stuff like that that you are amazing at fundraising for? Yeah, so um, my website is jamiebrown.com, and um, so you can check out like all my old adventures there and. Um, the seven summits and you know about the Atlantic row and some of those I put up some of those um, personal diaries I talked about you know the video diaries there but uh, mostly um, the best place is Instagram you know as social media wise place I'm most active would be on Instagram um, so yeah Oudstock is my handle and uh, yeah I try and I try and share some stuff there and what I'm doing and how I'm prepping and yeah so that's a good place to, to follow along guys I definitely advise you if you aren't following Damien and you want to follow those challenges or make any donations for when Damien is doing those amazing challenges head over to his page head over to the website get the full story and Damien thank you so much for giving up so much of your time today to have a chat no worries Shane. stay safe Thanks take care thank you so much to Damien for coming on today it was an incredible episode incredible stuff on the mindset on his challenges how he pushes his body how he builds the resilience how he has that fit for purpose the nutrition side of things the positive positivity is a choice the books so guys if you've enjoyed the episode at all please do tag Damien and I up on your story so Damien's handle as he's mentioned is Elstock um, so please do kind of go up onto iTunes leave a review and if you've enjoyed it all please do tag us even DM us uh, so guys hope you've enjoyed it and I'll talk to you very very soon